Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy weekly podcast where each week the Rethink Energy team talks about the events and technologies driving the transition to clean energy. Our CEO Peter White is away this week on holiday, uh, so your host this week will be myself, Harry Morgan. Um, I'm the editor and hydrogen analyst at Rethink Energy. Today I'm joined by our solar analyst, Andrew Swansonar. Hello. Uh, as well as our new an- analyst, Bogdan Avramuta. Hello. And Connor Watts. Hello. Today, we're going to talk about China's advances in cadmium telluride solar and what that means for the solar industry worldwide. Uh, We'll also touch on another shift in the battery market, this time in the US, uh, where President Biden's new Inflation Reduction Act could be forcing the market away from traditional lithium-ion technologies and chemistries. Uh, But first, um, I'd like to touch on a story that I wrote this week, which also appeared in the publication Recharge. Um, In fact, it actually came in direct response to some debate that we were having uh, online on LinkedIn uh, the story addressed the cost of green hydrogen and how market dynamics across the board will be driving uh, production costs right down to that one dollar per fifty um, per kilogram by tw- uh, price point we've seen by twenty thirty. Um, in fact, I mean it also comes at a time where green hydrogen we believe is actually already cost competitive grey hydrogen um, due to sort of the elevated prices of natural gas that we're seeing in the market. But still, we're seeing people debating green hydrogen being cost competitive, cost competitive and ever really used in the industry. Largely, the people that we're having to battle off are those working in EV space, the sort of electric aviation, sustainable aviation fuels. Uh, those who are sort of worried about green hydrogen don't see green hydrogen uh, penetrating their markets or can't see green hydrogen penetrating any market. Um, one of the key things we really have to bring up here is that Green hydrogen has markets to come into straight away, looking at uh, markets where grey hydrogen is used, grey hydrogen being produced through natural gas um, and used in uh, industries like ammonia production for fertiliser and in um, reducing the sulphur content of diesel fuel. The interesting thing about hydrogen coming down to $1.50 per kilogram is uh, that it is, it, we, we believe it to be an inevitability. I mean, if you're looking at sort of the breaking the cost down chunk by chunk, you've got the CapEx, which... Um, well, we're expecting to see the electrolyzers fall uh, massively in cost. The economies of scale, this huge build out in products that we're seeing. I mean, the pipeline of projects for electrolyzers is, is a thousand times greater than it is uh, than the, the amount we've got installed today. And we're seeing this huge amount of gigafactories as well. We've got um, even this week, since we published our gigafactory report maybe two weeks ago, uh, Fortescue uh, Future Industries announced that it's going to um, install another gigafactory in Australia with around two gigawatts of production capacity. So there's this huge build out in hydrogen uh, electrolyzer production capacity, which is simply just going to drive that economies of scale and really, really drive the um, reduction in that CapEx cost. Another one of the, the criticisms we've, we've faced is that obviously the CapEx cost isn't just associated with the electrolyzer. You've got the dryers, coolers, civil works, grid connection. Um, but these are all full in cost as well. It's all going to be a part of the advancement of the hydrogen industry, sort of a more efficient industry. We're seeing things like sales costs being reduced due to the competitiveness of the industry as well. So while we're expecting, while we've said there's this learning rate of 11% on electrolyzers, this is aggregated across a whole system. So the, what we expect to see is the learning rate for electrolyzers in the recent sort of 15 to 20%, and then the learning rate for these sort of civil works and this other associated costs between sort of maybe 5 and 10%. Um, and I mean, this is all very in line with what the electrolyzer manufacturers are saying. We've seen a NAPTA and Nell very much looking at that $1.50 per kilogram range in sort of the next five, 10 years, and talking about how the OPEX of that will also change in line with the CAPEX as well. Um, also, when you're looking at other factors within the market, you've got efficiency gains. 
Um, we got the utilization rate, rate rising from these projects. And what people say, oh, you'll need 100% electrolyzer utilization with extremely low cost fuels. What we basically said is that's not true. Uh, if you're looking at utilization rates of between 25 and 30%, which you can obviously achieve for many renewable energy projects, and especially those that are using a hybrid of wind and solar, you can really secure these long-term PPAs at really low cost. So we're expecting to see those at around $32 per megawatt hour at the moment, falling to around $20 in the next 10 years' time. Um, and because of that, that's why we see this cost falling to $1.50 per kilogram. But that is just for production. I think that's that probably is a good time to come on to talk about you, Bogdan, because a lot of what this criticism online has been is it's been talking about how the production cost of $1.50 doesn't really mean anything. I mean, obviously it does if we compare to grey hydrogen directly, but the actual price of hydrogen for the consumer normally is going to be a lot higher than that. It's going to be probably $2, uh, $2.50 up to sort of $3.50 per kilogram if you're looking at the distribution of it using either a pipeline um, or a vessel or if you're converting it into ammonia and back again, stuff like that. But this week, Bogdan, you were talking about a company called uh, Fusion Fuel who were looking at sort of distributed approach to electrolysis and hydrogen production, which can really help alleviate that. Yes, that's true. So I came across Fusion Fuel and there were two things that um, kind of caught my attention. It was um, their uh, novel way of making green hydrogen and also their niche market position. So first of all, their design is basically a combination of a PEM electrolyzer and a concentrated photovoltaic subsystem. And the way that works is the uh, CPV, the concentrated photovoltaic system, um, is used to absorb concentrated sunlight, convert it into electricity, and alongside water that is also heated by the heat generators, a product of the CPV. That's how they made the green hydrogen. Um, and they do all that in a decentralized manner. So by that, um, it means that the customer, uh, especially customers in the small to medium hydrogen markets, can buy this technology, which is a CapEx investment, and then see virtually no transportation costs because they basically make the hydrogen in their back garden. Um, so as long as the, this kind of math makes sense, the capex investment with the um, against the opex reduction, long term, and fusion fuel claims that it does, uh, this can I think it can prove a, to be a game changer for a lot of small to medium businesses and um, and industries, and this will help um, the much bigger hydrogen farms as well that are on the horizon to cope with the massive wave of demand that everybody is pointing out through the multitude of deals and investments in the hydrogen sector. Um, and if at least some of the businesses out there can avoid placing a further strain on the transportation of hydrogen, then this will benefit the growth um, of the industry as a whole, I think. So you were saying earlier, uh, Harry, that it needs to be decentralized. And is that because of this 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 vision where you can dodge a lot of the transport costs uh, as well as contributing to local heating or is it other is the heat being used for other things not heating i think so um that, i mean that's one of the things i found most interesting about fusion fuel technology and, and bogdan's article was this uh, the use of heat as a byproduct um also using to sort of increase the efficiencies generally um that's something that i think we will expect to see cross hydrogen generation especially if you're looking at things like solid oxide electrolyzers really helping to capitalize on waste heat from industry to improve the efficiency of hydrogen production uh, and i think that will be done large and distributed focus anywhere i think when we're looking at the hydrogen industry there's two approaches being taken really and actually it, it's similar to solar to some extent you've got the distributed approach and you've got sort of the the large scale utility scale approach um to a certain extent i think if you're looking at sort of green facilities that are going to use green hydrogen there will be some relocation of that to where green 
hydrogen can be produced at low cost. So we'll start seeing steel mills, steel, steel mills, for example, popping up in countries where green hydrogen production can be low rather than where coal costs have previously been low, which have normally been used to power those plants. But you've then got the distributed approach, so where places that might have more embedded facilities that don't have, uh, or maybe smaller companies that don't have the resources to be able to just simply set up shops somewhere else, they'll be wanting to produce their own hydrogen on site and they might be ad- adopting more modular electrolyzers, like those being developed by the likes of Anapta, or taking this approach that we talked about with fusion fuels. So I think there's this really interesting sort of divergence there. And obviously, if you're looking at the price gains you can make from doing it at scale, as we've said in this in utility scale approach, and then you can distribute the fuel, you can take that hit on the sort of one to two dollars per kilogram potentially on the transportation costs. But then if you're looking at to using a slightly more expensive electrolyzer system, which I imagine would be the case uh, with fusion fuel, then you actually can, yeah, you can eliminate the need to actually transport the hydrogen to your site. It's something we expect to see in um in sort of ammonia as well. Um uh, it's a company called Fuel Positive are doing the same sort of approach for production of green ammonia using sort of shipping containers on farms essentially to produce fertilizer on the farm itself and yeah reducing the costs of distributing that fuel which can count for around sort of 50% of that overall cost. Not, yeah, so my opinion there is is really that, and it, and it is an opinion, is that when you're looking at uh, sort of electric vehicles and you've been in the uh, the electric vehicle space for five, ten years, um, you, you've become very focused on certain metrics that are largely associated with the roundtrip efficiency, where obviously with electric vehicles in terms of the charge, discharge, you've probably got 80, 90 percent uh, efficiency. With hydrogen, in terms of you, if you're looking at producing hydrogen from renewables, um, distributing that as a fuel putting it in a vehicle, running it through a fuel cell or, or a combustion engine, then you've got efficiency of around 40%, which are obviously completely dwarfed and it, and it doesn't make much sense. But I think because we haven't seen the applications in sort of heavy industry, heavy trucking, for example, where you're, you really struggle to scale batteries and actually it becomes more cost-effective to simply scale your storage system and, as I said, take the hit on the efficiency side of things, maybe build sort of an overcapacity system, then that's where... Um, hydrogen gains its advantage and because we haven't seen those yet the market is very focused on metrics it's been used to looking at I think so looking at these these round trip efficiency metrics also there is obviously some sense of protectionism as well I think a lot of the electric vehicle manufacturers and people working in the EV space are assuming that their technologies will eventually be scaled for um, sort of light commercial vehicles then trucks then big then big ships then planes whereas simply that probably won't be that won't be the case due to the physical limitations of batteries and uh, if you can then use hydrogen instead that then it, it changes how the markets um, sort of takes that approach and um yeah it prevents them from entering those spaces so there is i think a bias there um but i mean their, their concerns and, and what they're talking about from a physical perspective is, is is accurate but it's not necessarily how the market uh, will work and i think as peter often says um it's not always the best technology that wins in terms of these efficiencies. It's, the, it's those that are essentially easy to implement and those that can race to market quickly. And with the amount of investment we're seeing in hydrogen at the moment, it means that it certainly will be used to replace this grey hydrogen and then go beyond into these new industries. One, one thing I just wanted to touch on, uh, Bogdan, is because obviously you've spoken to Fusion Fuel a few times now. Um, what sort of stage of development they're at? Um, where are they in terms of their development? How close are they sort of pushing this distributed approach towards sort of commercialization? Well, I think they... Um... They're working on a uh, production plant in Portugal. 
that's meant to produce um, green hydrogen. So this is another thing that I mentioned in um, in the article is they have two business cases. Um, they either sell the technology they make or or they can also sell the, the, the green hydrogen they can produce with their technology. And I think at the moment um, they're kind of building both um, and in the next few years they're going to hope for uh, for more more collaborations and uh, and more sales on the technology side so if they if they're in portugal that's a very very sunny place and they're using this uh concentrated solar stuff it's not just the photovoltaics but also um heat which i think makes it even more dependent on on irradiation and where you are in the world and that's why they're in portugal i, I would surmise did did they say um did they say have much of an opinion about how sort of geographically limited they are are they planning anything for north europe for example or are they going to be more like california next yeah i think they're aiming for australia they have they mm. have some some projects uh coming in australia they they weren't able to divulge in details yet for obvious reasons, but I think they're um, they're exploring the um, south of Europe, north of Africa, Australia, um, potentially the states, but they haven't said that. This is just my my guess. Um, so I think given that the, the stage that they're at right now, I think they have plenty of territories to explore still until um, they can question uh, North Europe, like you mentioned, and um, other regions that are not so rich in solar irradiation. And that leads into a question I have for Harry. So I'm looking at this graph in your article, uh, and it has a projection of green hydrogen cost. And the capex is pretty large right now. Uh, Over time, though, it declines to quite a small figure, and the opex also declines. And you're left mostly with fuel cost, which I take it is electricity, renewable electricity cost, right? Yeah, so that's the that's the relation between renewable electricity costs and the water also used to drive that. I mean, it's it's mainly it's mainly the um, renewable electricity costs. And I think one thing one thing that is worth pointing out here is that this is a weighted average of of where the hydrogen we anticipate the hydrogen can be produced as well. And that obviously is very focused on markets like Portugal um, and Australia that we've talked about that have this exceptional renewable potential. And I mean, even this week, and we won't go into detail on in the article, but we've been bogged down wrote about the Suez Canal in Egypt and how that can be a that's expected to be a real hydrogen hub in terms of production and then hydrogen trade. So it really is sort of the market's really starting to shift towards these companies that have these countries that have this exceptional resource and can produce hydrogen at this low cost. So just remind me, is it um is it gonna be transmitted by pipelines or fuel tankers or both? It depends purely on who the customer is. If you're transporting hydrogen over short distances and there's the infrastructure there for natural gas um, that can be converted to hydrogen, then yeah, pipeline makes sense. You're looking at longer distances, um, then it very much is trans- switch that towards uh, ammonia or liquid hydrogen, and then transport that via a vessel. So uh, obviously, there's the barriers with the liquid hydrogen at the moment around the temperatures that would be required to actually trans- uh, trans- um, transport it. So that's why we're seeing ammonia being used at the moment. And I think a lot of the hydrogen we expect to see transported to Europe from, say, Latin America, for example, that will be that will come as ammonia. Whereas if we're talking about hydrogen produced in Portugal coming to Europe, we potentially be talking about a pipeline. I mean, Spain, for example, is looking at using one of its existing pipelines um, with France to actually supply up to 10% of Europe's overall hydrogen demand. So that's an example of how the two approaches are being used in sort of conjunction with each other. Andres, let's move on to you and talk about um, cadmium telluride solar. Um, what, was it, what was it this week? China coming out with sort of a record efficiency in terms of the module efficiency rating there. 
Well, um, I started out writing about cadmium because I find it interesting. And then I ended up writing about perovskite more towards the end. And since writing and publishing that article, I've seen some more stuff because I realized I hadn't checked up on what the Chinese are doing in perovskite, and they've been doing a fair amount. So, But I'll get to that. I'll start with the cadmium telluride. So um, generally speaking, China has a technological lag behind the West still, which is shrinking. Um, and that's in general for almost anything, um, certainly not for everything, but for most things. It still exists, and it, even if it's only a fraction of what it used to be. Now, that, that, that's very much true in solar as well, or at least it has been. But of course, now that they control almost the entire mainstream silicon-based photovoltaics, and they have almost the entire industry, especially for wafers, uh, that technological gap has shrunk. And you could say that some Western companies like Maya Berger are more advanced, but Maya Berger is still working towards its first gigawatt of um, capacity, production capacity, having spent 10 years or more selling production line equipment to the Chinese. So you know, it's questionably relevant to say that China is less advanced when it's the only one making them. Um, but it's still kind of interesting to look at that. And it caught up on silicon with massive investment, massive scale. Uh, meanwhile, the other two technologies that weren't silicon, uh, cadmium telluride and uh, copper, indium, gallium, selenide, or SIGs, they mostly fell by the wayside, uh, with the sole exception of cadmium telluride still being used by America's uh, first solar. Um, so because of that, the technological lag for those two semiconductors still exists. Uh, and today, or quite recently, uh, this month, you've seen um, this one Chinese company, Advanced Solar Power, announce new efficiency records for its cadmium telluride and they're still behind first solar, but they're a lot closer than they used to be. They're about 1.5% behind. Uh, let me see. Do I have it written down here? I think it was it was 18.7% that first solar claims, and this advanced solar power company has now reached 17.2%, and it's it's scaling up. And, and just to, just to um, for answers you might not necessarily be aware, so what what is cadmium telluride solar, and what does it what does it provide for those sort of within the solar market? What um, what impact is it going to have? The relevance of cadmium telluride and perhaps also why it's come back to life ever so slightly now in China is it's thin film. So when a, a, a big, beefy, high-efficiency, modern silicon solar panel can weigh as much as 40 kilograms. Um, you can't really put that – you can't really integrate that into a window or easily make it into a floor tile or um, uh, let alone a, a car roof for an EV. Uh, but that's the kind of things that uh, this, this Chinese company and, and, and really a lot of the SIGs uh, and cadmium telluride small companies are, are offering. They're, they're, this is building, it's called Building Integrated Photovoltaics or BIPV. And that's still a very small fraction of China's market. I mean, a couple of years ago, China was still nominally half rooftop, uh, half distributed, um, half utility, but almost all the rooftop was. Um, commercial and industrial, so still quite large installations. Um, now it's kind of shifting towards proper residential a bit, and increasingly you're seeing even places like Shanghai try to pursue solar development. So that means it has to be building integrated. So building integrated is still quite small. It is niche, like I said in the title, with, with the SIGs and the cadmium telluride, but it's growing rapidly um, compared to its current size. And it's, it's just interesting that uh, first solar is not the only game in town. Now, I should finish that off. Otherwise, some people will be really baffled by saying that actually First Solar weirdly sells exclusively to the utility scale market so far. Um, 
it's probably just a weird artifact of tariffs and it, it being the sole large-scale um, American manufacturer that managed to survive. Uh, it's quite peculiar. And America is very unique in being a majority utility-scale market. Uh, I think India is the only other one that I can think of that's majority utility-scale like that. No, I guess I guess I'd be interested to hear what you've got to say about perovskite now that you've said, yeah, none. You've got that sort of introduction mm. with a cadmium telluride as well. Well, actually, I, there is one more thing that leads sort of leads into that from cadmium telluride, which is that earlier this year I spoke to a company that is sort of the little brother of First Solar. It's, it's physically nearby in, in Ohio, and it's pursuing it hired some of the same people, and it's pursuing cadmium telluride, um, but built smaller to be be a roof, rooftop product. Um, and now, uh, also this year, you saw First Solar um, say it would develop a, a tandem offering. I can't quite remember all the details, but it was a cadmium telluride with silicon um, photovoltaic tandem module, which is very exciting. And they're developing that with, I believe it was Sunrun uh, or SunPower, probably Sunrun. Um, Sunrun's providing the finance and the installation. So you can see there the suitability for rooftop and that it is, it is shifting towards that a bit with those two instances. Um, now, so, so, you know, I was writing about China. Oh, yeah, China's catching up on this one thin film technology. And that reminded me of perovskites. And I thought, well, I'd better check on what the Chinese are doing for perovskites because that's, you know, that used to be this new exciting thing. And then it just kept on dragging on with these technical obstacles. Um, that kept on getting in the way of commercialization. And that's still very much a, a new thing. So a, a real thing, a real obstacle is questions about degradation, questions about stability, questions about toxicity, if it leaks. That used to be a problem for cadmium telluride as well. Um, and questions about efficiency once you scale it up from a small-scale test cell in a lab to a full-scale module. So perovskite still has some challenges for all of those things. And the promises that various companies have made that we'll build a pilot line next year and sell things next year have mostly not come to pass year after year, which is a bit frustrating because I'm afraid I fell for the, those promises a bit. Um, but um, earlier this year, we saw in Europe, uh, we saw Poland's sell the technologies, I probably mispronounced that, um, commercialized, and it managed to sell its first perovskites and that was building integrated. Mostly they, they look at device integrated products. Now we're seeing, um, as of actually a few months ago, and I missed it, uh, the first perovskites being deployed in China commercially as well. Uh, it was by MicroQuanta, which I was familiar with. It's, it seems to be the most advanced uh, perovskite company in China. Now, it, the, this deployment that's actually happening and being constructed now is probably mostly built now is only 12 megawatts in scale. So it's still very small. MicroQuanta now has a 100 megawatt production line. I think there's several other Chinese companies that say they're working on their first 100 megawatt production lines. Um, Jiang, uh, what, what's it called? Jiangxi Light Machinery. I can't quite remember that off the top of my head. There's a company that says it has 2.8 gigawatts in interests for uh, in um, bids for, for perovskite uh, production line equipment. There's at least half a dozen companies that I've seen in the past day uh, as I was researching it that have managed to raise tens of millions of dollars each into their pilot line. So, it's, again, the question is, when is this actually going to be commercialized? Um, how much are they actually going to be producing? I think they will now have the production lines. We know that MicroQuanta has the production lines. Scaling up to one gigawatt is another question. Um, actually running those production lines full pelt instead of constantly testing and retesting and altering their formulae um, for the perovskite ink 
that's uh, another thing. Um, and I think the the impression I get is that it will be commercialized at a gigawatt scale level at about 2025. That's what, um, again, I can't remember the name. <laughs> Oh, can I? Um, that's what that's what a couple of these companies have been saying that they plan to offer a tandem product. By the way, this is mostly tandem that's being offered um, by 2025. Uh, and another reason to believe that, and that it won't come any sooner than that, is that all of the companies in China that are pursuing perovskites, they're still either small startups or companies that are coming externally from photovoltaics entirely, and they're trying to. Uh, sort of skip all the development that the silicon semiconductors have had over the years and just have a brand new product that dodges all of that uh, established expertise and infrastructure. Uh, meanwhile, the the existing uh, giants like Longi and Jinko Solar that are building silicon, they still haven't made a big move into perovskites or really much of a significant move at all. Um, so until that happens, I would still say it's three years away. When we were talking about perovskites, probably a year ago now, um, when you first wrote your Paris Cut report, um, it was a company called Oxford PV that was really sort of leading, as we assume to be leading the technology side of things. Do you ever hear from them anymore? Um, as in, do, what, what's, going on with, what's going on with that company? Uh, well, um, they, I don't want to say that they're not getting anywhere because they'd probably be mad at me and I would like to maybe have another interview with them sometime. But after that, they did seem to go a bit quiet. I, um, I think they didn't reply to one of my emails um, asking for an interview after their fallout with Maya Berger. And Maya Berger is this technologically advanced um, cell production line equipment company um, that was going to supply them with stuff they needed for their production line, and then they broke it off because Maya Berger is going to be a manufacturer in its own right, so it doesn't want to help a rival. Or I'm not quite sure exactly what went on. It was quite confusing. Um, so... What is Oxford BV doing? I'm not sure. Uh, people have said uncharitably that it's been one year away from uh, its first pilot line being operational for several years now. Uh, I, I, the thing is, uh, Perovskite has so much research behind it, and Oxford BV is leading in the research. I think they'll still get around to doing something. I just can't quite say when. Um, I mean, if you speak to Salatech, when I asked Salatech about Oxford BV, PV, I was saying, so you're Salatech, you're actually selling perovskites now, albeit, you know, admittedly at a small level, but you have small costs and it's a reliable business model for you now. So what do you think about Oxford PV? I mean, they're kind of failing, aren't they? What are they up to? And Salatech was just purely complimentary to Oxford PV. They said, oh no, without them, we wouldn't be here. They, they founded the, the um, they, they generated so much interest, they generated so much research. So I think it's, I, I'm not quite willing to write them off yet. I just can't say when they're going to produce something. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. It just seems, that, yeah, it seems to me like there's a few engineering barriers that are probably not quite solved yet. And if those get solved, then suddenly we could see a real resurgence in Paris guys being talked about. I don't think it's like things like in the energy sector, like maybe sort of wave power that have had um, huge amounts of interest in the past and then suddenly died off. Um, I, I think it's probably more something that there's a few, maybe surmountable barriers in place that could, that could be overtaken and then, then, yeah, we could see, start to see projects and things like having Telerise really entering the market and, and actually having that level of disruption. Just moving on, I'm just pleased that this is, this is a shift really being driven by technology and driven by sort of new efficiencies and new technologies coming to market. We'll move on to what, uh, a shift in the industry that is being spurred potentially more by politics. Um, Connor, this week you wrote about President Biden's new Inflation Reduction Act and how that could be, that could be spurring a shift away from traditional lithium-ion batteries towards lithium-ion phosphate. 
Yes, exactly. I assume that you've all read somewhat into the Inflation Reduction Act and kind of its effect on your areas and that sort of thing. What I find interesting about it from a political perspective is that it gives the US effectively influence over the battery chemistries that are going to be adopted within their kind of jurisdiction, if you will. Traditional NMC batteries of just nickel, manganese, cobalt, none of those are majority produced within the US or its allies. Nickel is mostly made in China, manganese is mostly made in South Africa, and cobalt has long been an issue and is mostly made in the Congo. None of those are allies, and all of those would effectively fail under the conditions imposed by the IRA. And since that, most companies are clamoring to get into both Canada and Chile to begin production and effectively secure supply to be able to feed into the American market under the subsidies made available by the IRA. But how America's relationships change could directly influence battery chemistry. If somehow they had a massive falling out with Canada, Chile, or the um, condition is directly that its materials need to be sourced and manufactured within either the US or a country where it shares a free trade agreement. So any company with with reserves that wish to be used there, which I think it's Canada, Chile, Australia, and a couple others that are smaller with less resources. But So just to, to make it clear, the lithium iron phosphate is the type of lithium that's not being used much right now, but could be. And it's sourced, where, where would it be sourced from exactly? Iron is everywhere. Hmm. Uh, oh, okay. Charitably. There's, it's, um, well, there's a lot of it that, that's mined in Australia. So it's a potential alternative to the to the to the sort of big headline um, lithium deposits, which were in Bolivia, uh, Bolivia, Chile, and the other one that's next to it. The, the thing that I found really interesting about your article, Colin, was that obviously at the end you go into the the fact that obviously the the problem with this lithium phosphate uh, batteries is that they're slightly less energy dense than NMC batteries, which is a specific type of lithium lithium ion battery. I think you, yeah, you said around fourteen percent less energy dense um, to get the same range and, and sort of cost effect, um, so cost effectiveness really. But actually, if you're looking at the cost of these batteries, they're already cheaper than um, NMCs to produce, and that that surprised me given the fact that lithium ions really being produced at the scale that it is. So I think really, if if you can perform, if you can um, find vehicles that don't necessarily have the need for the range that um, some cars do in the US, obviously, but that might not be ideal again for the US market, then then you could you could you could sh- you could shift towards those different uh, phosphate batteries. But as you've said, if you're looking for this US obsession with range and and sort of larger vehicles, then that might be slightly more difficult to implement. But as you've said, by the um, inflation reduction act and this shift towards domestic materials or potential shift towards domestic materials, then actually it potentially is the best way for them to go. It'll be interesting to see if any uh, large car makers choose to adopt it in the next few months. I feel like the main thing that the US needs is an appreciation for kind of fuel efficiency. So if the kind of comparably high prices that they've had recently actually encourage them to go away and so, and well, to go away and say, I don't need a massive four-ton vehicle to drive around a city in LA and then just say, oh, I could get a hatchback. It would massively simplify many, many things because the size of the battery is threefold in that larger vehicle. It's it's a problem, but it's not one that can't be solved by reason, and that's why I'm worried. 
with the US? <laughs> well, perhaps it will be solved in one part and not in the other, basically in the densely populated coastal regions. Oh, yeah, I, yeah, I agree. It's, I it's a, more of a cell. A bit of a split. In the more rural areas where you obviously need the range and you kind of have yeah. to drive further to get what you need, then... Yeah. Yeah, oh, I want to visit some family members and let, let's go and drive to them. And Oh, they're as far... You know, you know, it's like driving from Portugal to France or something. Well, further, actually. Mm. Yes. Well, thanks, Colin. And, yeah, so... I, and I mean, you can get all of these stories and more on the Rethink Energy website, which is uh, rethinkresearch.biz forward slash energy. Uh, just to touch on a few of the worth noting from the week, um, Russia, obviously, this week announced that it wasn't going to resume its natural gas supplies to Europe through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. That's obviously something they're expecting to really disrupt um, the natural gas supply to Europe or continues to disrupt the natural um, gas supply to Europe. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how Europe can manage its natural gas reserves there. Um, oil prices continue to fall this week, um, largely due to yeah, fears of a broader global economic recession. Um, and in the UK... Uh, we had new prime minister this morning, Liz Truss, was sworn in as UK prime minister on Tuesday, um, going into power under a lot more pressure than uh, many of her predecessors in the energy sector. Uh, her key policy really has been this, this uh, expected price cap on annual household electricity bills at uh, of £2,500. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how she translates that into one for potentially businesses in the country and how that then impacts the profitability of energy suppliers in the UK. Well, apparently Jacob Rees-Mogg is the energy secretary. I was just reading our worth notings. And he's the one that wears a top hat, isn't he? <laughs> Previously quite a heavy climate denier in the past and not potentially someone who we want We want running the energy sector of the UK, um, although it potentially does fall in line with Liz Truss's plans to exploit more uh, fracking and sort of North Sea oil and gas. So, again, a backward step for the UK and something that we really hope is not materialised and uh, that potentially a new government is in place to undo all the things they're promising they're going to do before they can actually come into play. Um, the key things we need to see in the UK really are more onshore wind. And actually, to be fair, we've seen this week, we've seen four gigawatt uh, announcements that, that around four gigawatts of onshore wind capacity has been uh, announced this year for the next couple of years, which is a, a huge increase considering we've had basically nothing installed over the past few years. And we need some more uh, installation as well. I mean, at the moment, the installation schemes being run by the UK government are almost at all-time lows, which is, is crazy at a time when we're going through such an energy crisis and such a cost of living crisis. So I think that's, those are the two focuses that we need from the Prime Minister rather than this obsession with oil and gas. You've got to bear in mind that Liz Truss herself um, used to work for Shell. So I think there is potentially some vested interest there and, we, and it's something that there needs to be some sort of accountability for and there needs to be a lot of public pressure on to make sure that there isn't this backward step away from the... Uh, climate ambition that we did see from we did see to a certain extent from the Conservative government although not necessarily to the levels that we need but it was certainly a step forward compared to many other countries um, anyway we'll be covering that I'm sure over the next few weeks um, and we'll be very much keeping on top of it uh, you can get all of these stories and more from from the week on uh, as, as I said at rethinkresearch.biz forward slash energy all of this is available free our research is available um, which is, is, is the bulk of our um, what we put our time into uh, that's available for a corporate license of £4,000, uh, £4,000. Um, and through that, you can get access to yeah, forecasting data and, and, and much more access to our sort of consultancy projects. Um, so from us on the Rethink Energy team, thank you for listening. Uh, and we'll see you next week for another uh, edition of the Rethink Energy podcast.